0: I must say it's feeling very nice in here, and it's very delicious to be here with you on retreat. Tonight I'd like to talk about something called Beginner's Mind. (coughs) This summer I was at a conference on conscious aging. It's kind of heartening to know that there are people who are uh, reframing aging in our culture instead of doing it unconsciously, consciously. So, I was at a conference where Ramdas was the keynote speaker, and it was a lively group of about 150 or 160 people. It was very heartening to see that the uh, conscious aging people are indeed um, feeling quite peppy and conscious. <laughs> And I include Ramdas in that category. And as I listened to the various uh, presenters and different workshops that they were um, presenting there, I began to hear a certain theme being put forth over and over and over again in different ways. And it was the theme of beginning again. That in the midst of our life's journey, We are given the task, sometimes by external circumstances out of our control, sometimes by inner stirrings of something in our own hearts. We suddenly find ourselves beginning again, starting anew, moving in a new direction or taking on a new role in life. And in that, moving once again into the unknown. For example, some presenters at the conference talked about the second journey, which they conceived of as beginning around the age of 60. That we are given an opportunity on reaching 60 to begin another whole new journey in life called aging, called conscious aging. Very much like the sadhu tradition in India, where it is considered that once a person has reached the age of 60, they have completed their worldly responsibilities of the householder life, and they are set free to wander and follow their spiritual search, follow their spiritual longings. And so they do. Another presentation at the conference was by a couple who had been married for over fifty years. They were very alive in their relationship, and you could you could feel it in them and you could sense it. So they were teaching a a, a, a workshop on relationship. And the main thrust of their teaching was that within the fifty years of marriage it, that they had experienced, They had actually gone through five different marriages. They had found in their own marriage that at different times they needed to renew their contract, renew their vows, renew their sense of priority or roles they were playing or intentions for their marriage and for themselves. It was very inspiring to hear them talk. And then, of course, Randa spoke. And he spoke very movingly about what he discovered after his stroke. Or as he says, I didn't have a stroke, my body had a stroke, which I think is a nice distinction. But he said after his body had a stroke, he discovered that he had to begin a new incarnation, that it was only suffering to even imagine that he could go back to the way it was before. And so he has discovered a new life, a new beginning. We can see this beginning again also in the life of the Buddha. He led several different incarnations in the course of his journey through life. One was as a prince, one was as an ascetic wanderer, monk, and one was as a teacher. He had to renew and begin again. As we age, we discover the truth of changing conditions. That we cannot count on the future to be as it is now. Somewhere else in my travels this summer, I met a man, not at this Conscious Aging Conference, but um, somewhere else. I met a man who had been uh, married for over 40 years, and his wife was deceased quite recently. And he said to me, he said, it never occurred to me that she would die. He was very lost. He was very confused. Another story of a man whose daughter was speaking to me. Uh, her father was dying at the age of 90-some years. He had always been healthy. He had always been strong. Suddenly he was dying, and she said, he said over and over again, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Somehow his dying seemed like a mistake. Or a failure. Life catches us eventually, sometimes with this kind of shock, sometimes with a gradual change in our perception. In addition to the aging of the body and the inevitability of death, many times in the course of a person's life, a change of heart may herald the beginning of a new life. And so we witness this in the world. There's the story of a man named King Ashoka, who in the time of the Buddha was a very uh, powerful warrior king. He conquered many kingdoms, he pillaged, he massacred thousands of people priding himself on his power. But after he had done this for many years, one day, after a particularly bloody battle, he was surveying the scene of this carnage, and he was suddenly filled with revulsion at what he was witnessing, at what his army had done. And just then, he saw, in the distance, wandering through this scene of carnage, a Buddhist monk, mindfully, serenely, compassionately walking through this battlefield. And something in this monk's demeanor just really went into his heart, and he knew at that moment that he could kill no more, He knew at that moment he wanted to find the path of peace. And so he became a Buddhist and established a great reign of peace and spread the teachings of the Buddha throughout his kingdom. Quite a change. Another story I'd like to share is that of one closer to home of a young white American male who had become a skinhead. His name was Richard Sabinski, and he writes that by the time he was 23 years old, he said, I realized I was an evil person. He had already been in prison. He had already been engaged in selling drugs and engaging in violence and Lots of gang warfare, lots of racial hatred filled his heart, and suddenly he realized I was an evil person. He said, this reflection struck me out of nowhere. I was in my backyard, and I suddenly was overcome by great sadness about my life and what I'd become. I knelt down and asked God for mercy. It was the first time I'd prayed in ten years. The next week, he again was in his backyard by himself, and he again knelt down and asked God to forgive him. He said, all the violence, the hatred, and craziness of my life flashed through my mind, all of it. I saw what a miracle it was that I had survived. I felt so grateful to be alive. I suddenly understood what a gift life is and I knew that I wanted to do something good with mine. The next day I went to the bus stop and saw a black man waiting there alone. I looked at him and was amazed. I felt no hatred toward him. I saw he was a human being just like me. I had never looked at a non-white person without rage rising in me. Now the rage was gone. I was so surprised I almost started to cry. The man turned toward me. I smiled and said hello. It was the first kind word I had ever spoken to a man of color. Overnight, my heart had turned from stone to flesh. Mysterious, but real. These stories of lives which changed Course, all speak of a capacity that we all have to radically alter our habitual patterns of seeing and being. We are all able to find this place inside. We are all able to begin again, to begin a new life, whether it's the new life of returning to the breath, or a new life of letting go of a whole phase of our lives. In doing mindfulness practice, we are opening ourselves to the possibility of understanding this moment of beginning again, of understanding the potential that it holds for us of seeing and being in a different mode, a different way we are, you could say, cultivating this thing called beginner's mind. Suzuki Roshi was the one who introduced us to the idea of beginner's mind. He said, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are only a few. So this quality of beginner's mind is that quality of attention that is able to let go of the past, to suspend judgment or opinion about the present, and to take a fresh look. We could say it's the willingness not to know, not to arrive at our usual conclusions about what something means or how it is going to unfold, or how we should try to manipulate it or what we should do with it. It is rather simply an openness and a listening without arriving at conclusions. It is a trust in the unfolding of the process, just as it is, without our need to manipulate it. Doing this kind of practice and especially on a retreat cultivates the optimal conditions for the arising of this mind of the beginner, of beginner's mind. Beginner's mind arises out of our capacity to let go. It is the letting go which makes space for a new way of seeing and a new way of being. So it brings up the question, what is our relationship to the past? Do we need to let go of the past, our past glories, our thoughts about what might have been, or what we should have done, or what we should have said? Do we need to let go of regret, of remorse, of blame, of anger? We can also ask that question about the future. We may need to let go of our obsession with the future, a fantasy that is unlikely to occur, our expectations, our obsessive worry or planning. We might ask ourselves the question, what, which is more vivid and alive and fresh? for us, a memory of the past, a fantasy of the future, or this moment, this present living moment. We might ask, where am I living most of the time? We might ask, who am I in those moments when I am without a story? when I am without a story about the past, or a story about the future. Who am I then? What am I? There was a monk in the Buddhist time who had been a prince. His fellow monks noticed that he was always muttering to himself, and when they heard what he was muttering, it was, What bliss! What bliss! What bliss! And they got very curious about that, and some of them suggested that perhaps he was remembering his past life as a prince, and that he was, you know, remember had fond memories of life in the palace. And so they finally went to him and asked him what day, what, one day, what he was muttering about. And he, they said, "Do you miss your former life?" And he said, "Oh no." He had discovered the bliss of living in the present moment. When we discover the possibility of living more completely in the present, there is a quality of happiness that arises. What is required is a kind of letting go. Now this kind of question of letting go sometimes creates confusion for people. So I want to say a little bit about how letting go can appear in our practice, because it actually appears in many different ways. Sometimes letting go appears as mindfulness of what is difficult. When we can stay with what is difficult, when we are completely present with our sorrow, or with our anger, or with our worry, something begins to transform. It is this ability to be completely present with that which is difficult, which is the letting go itself. It is one of the keys to practice to freedom. I'd like to tell a story that I think very beautifully illustrates the power of this, the power of this practice to help us in those moments in our lives where we are disturbed, where something difficult is arising. At Spirit Rock for several years now we have had a group of people working on the issue of diversity looking at the issue of diversity for spirit rock. It is a very rich and powerful exploration of an issue that is very much present in our culture and yet not very well um, explored or talked about. So this group of people includes um, a number of white people, it also includes a number of people of color. We were having a meeting one day with some board members and our Council of Diversity, and we were talking about the whole issue of, of wanting to include more people of color in our retreats here at Spirit Rock, in our community life, feeling that many have come and sometimes not felt welcomed or like there was a place for them here. So we want to look at that. And at one point in the meeting, there was some discussion going on. I frankly don't remember what it was, but a person of color was speaking. And after that, a community member who has been doing practice for many years said very honestly and clearly he said, you know I am disturbed by what you said and I don't entirely understand it but I know it's important so I'm going to stay with my disturbance. It was a wonderful moment for all of us to witness, that this person's honesty and willingness to own his difficulty and let it go and be present with it was a very beautiful moment for the whole group. So we stopped, and we breathed, and we let it in. It is a lesson for our lives. So often, when someone says something that disturbs us, we do what? We want to defend ourselves, or we want to strike out. We don't want to hear what is being said. I think it's an, uh, a tribute to the practice, actually that a person can say, I am willing to stay with this disturbed feeling because I know it is important. It is a kind of letting go, a letting go that we think we know something. So that is one appearance of letting go in our practice, that willingness to be with that which is difficult. There are deep levels of letting go that appear as the bliss of samadhi. When we are very concentrated, the hindrances are not so apparent. We let them go, if only temporarily. There are levels of letting go that appear in the practice as patience. For example, when you are waiting for the bell to ring. It happens every day, perhaps every, at the end of every sitting. There are those agonizing moments when what you want is being frustrated. The bell is not ringing. What do you do in those moments? You're cultivating patience. You're cultivating patience. It is a great virtue in this way of practice. It is a kind of letting go. Sometimes there are, a letting go can appear as a sudden shift in our per- perception of something. Sometimes in interviews, a yogi will come and say, oh, "Everything's changing. Everything's changing." When we really see that on a moment-to-moment in a moment-to-moment way the arising and passing of thinking, the arising and passing of sensations, of sounds, when we really see it and let it in, something in our perception shifts, and it is a kind of letting go, a letting go of our belief in some sort of solidity in the world. Sometimes letting go appears as a new intention in the mind an intention to forgive, an intention to be kind to ourselves, an intention to extend compassion to those around us. This is a kind of letting go. Sometimes letting go can appear as a kind of surrender to what is. I'll tell a story about myself in a retreat several years ago it was a, a six-week retreat back in Massachusetts in the fall, and my, my yogi job was to put out the breakfast um, service before the first sitting of the day. And it was about five o'clock in the morning, I think, so it was always dark. And I began to notice that I didn't really like the job. It wasn't to my liking, because I'd rather be doing my yoga then, before the sitting. Sometimes I was feeling a little sleepy and dull, and I didn't like being in the dining room with all these yogis shuffling around, making their morning tea or coffee. It seemed to me, as I observed, that it was just a very dreary situation. (laughs) I mean, yogis look weird in the best of circumstances. but when they're in the dark and they're doing their slow thing with their blankets over their heads and you know they're spilling their coffee and they're coughing and they're waking up it's really a bad scene i kept thinking of this line from hamlet i think tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow <laughs> creeps on this petty pace from day to day and i thought oh god you know get me out of here well, after a couple of weeks of this, I was really bumming myself out, and I said to myself, all right, Anna, you teach this. What's going on, you know? So I said, okay, imagine if this routine were going to go on for the rest of my life. <laughs> this is my role in life from now to eternity, of getting up every morning and being with in this situation and putting out the breakfast things. What would that be like? How would you want to live for the rest of your life after all? And just giving myself that sort of assignment, sort of reframing the whole situation, really made a difference. Because I began to want to do it in a way that really felt better, that felt good, that felt that I was. Pouring all of my care and love for the practice into this morning service. That these were my wonderful friends and companions on the path and that I owed them the greatest of compassion and respect for being there. So reframing this situation, accepting that it would never end, really, really helped. So I say that to you, you know, try it those moments, some of those moments when you feel like, you know, they're never going to change. Well, maybe not. Maybe opening to that possibility may give you some new insight. So letting go can appear in our practice in all these different ways. And certainly in all the ways that we do let go, and it does happen. It just happens as we practice. We enter more fully into the life of this moment. Now you know from living in California, most of you, or even in America at this point, in spiritual circles we hear a lot about spiritual life as being... As about, it's a, what is it about? It's about being in the moment. Be here now living in the moment, which was actually the headline in the IJ, I think of last week or a few weeks ago, there was an article in the Marin newspaper, living in the moment. And it was an interview with our esteemed guru here, Jack Cornfield. I happened to have this newspaper with me when I went to the hairdresser. And I opened it up and it said, living in the moment. He said, oh, isn't that spirit rock? I said, yes. He said, Yeah, that's what I believe. Live for the moment. Go for the gusto. Life is short. (laughs) And I said, well, Michael, it's not exactly like that. (laughs) And then I tried to explain, which was probably a mistake. I said, you know, it's more about really being present in the moment, really being present for whatever arises in the moment. He said, well, what's so great about that? End of Dharma talk. But you may be wondering by now on this retreat, something of the same kind of question may be arising, you know. What's so great about this present moment? I've looked, I've seen it, and enough already. So I'd like to talk a little bit about What is this present moment? What is the value of bringing our attention to the present moment? We could say that the present moment is our training ground. It's our zendo. It's our dojo. It's where we go to train our attention. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote this. He said, The future can be seen right now. Because the future will be made of the present. If you look deeply into the present, you know already what kind of a future you'll have. If you can produce significant change in the present moment, then you know that the future may be different. It is where transformation can occur, in the moment. Ramana Maharshi put it this way, he said, Realize what is present here and now. The sages did so before and still do that only. Realize what is here, present, now. A poet, David Wagner, wherever you are is called here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger." What is this here? When we turn to the present moment, it is a significant action in our lives, because turning Towards this present is also a turning away from the belief that our happiness is to be found in finding and holding on to the right mix of external conditions. We all know this. If only I had the right relationship, the right job, the right house, the right whatever, then I will be happy. We've been on that search, have we not? So when we turn inward, we are opening to the present moment and to another source of happiness. Many qualities of being are discovered only in this turning inward, only in turning towards the present, do we discover peace, kindness, calm, equanimity, joy, ease of being, compassion, they're all found in this inward journey of turning towards the present. Turning toward the present moment, over and over again, we learn actually to see in a new way. We learn to see what is, to be with what is. Mindfulness allows us to see what is without bias or judgment. Mindfulness is not for or against anything. It simply reflects what is. It's like shining a mirror on our experience, simply reflecting what is. What is is sanity. The bare facts what should be, what could be, what we want. All of that is fantasy, a concept. It creates tension, it creates stress. What is, is sanity. Even if it's something difficult, even if it's confusion, even if it's a pain in the knee, it is, what is, is sanity. And the present moment is where we contact what is. And we begin to see through the eyes of mindful attention, we begin to see in the present what are called the three characteristics of existence. The three characteristics of existence. Very briefly I'm going to just describe them, because it is said that in every moment of our experience we can see these characteristics and it is the doorway to insight. The first characteristic is that of understanding what brings suffering and what brings an end to suffering. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So, by looking carefully, mindfully at our moment-to-moment experience, we can see how it is that we are suffering. It's often when we are identified with the content of our experience. We are telling ourselves a story, a story of worry, a story of fear. And out of that story, we begin to construct an image of who we are and a judgment of ourselves, probably that it's not okay that we are this way. And so the whole thing begins out of identification with the story. I like to tell this story about my dog, Max, because he, this story of Max seems to illustrate this point very well. I have a dog who is a very energetic, small Jack Russell Terrier. When he was about two years old and still not very well trained, we went downtown in Berkeley one hot summer day. And we were walking around. I had Max on a leash, and I decided to go into a cafe to get a cold drink. So, being an optimistic dog mom, I tied Max up to a plastic chair that was on the sidewalk. <laughs> My dog, I thought, would be very well trained, you know. He would stay when I told him. Well, not a chance. I got in the store, and just as I got in there, I heard this big commotion outside. And I looked around to see Max dashing up the sidewalk, pulling the plastic chair behind him, and barking at it. (laughs) So this is kind of what we do. We pull around our stories with with us, and we bark at them. (laughs) This is called holding on. We have the opportunity to see this. When we look to the present moment, we can see that we... Nobody else is doing it. We're not up here saying, hold on, hold on. (laughs) You are the only one doing it. And you are the only one that can let go. The letting go happens when we begin to attend to the process, when we see this story as appearing, as thought, as sensation, as memory, as feelings, all arising and passing. Which brings me to the second characteristic of all experience, which is that of constant change. Being mindful of the present moment reveals the truth of the changing nature of our lives, moment to moment. Everything is in flux, sights, sounds, sensations, breath, thoughts, arising and passing, one after the other. Suzuki Roshi wrote this, he said, Renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. They go away all by themselves. Is there anything that has arisen in the course of this retreat that you have been able to hold on to in a continuous way? I doubt it. So the truth of suffering, the truth of change, the final characteristic and the least obvious fact of our existence is that when we are mindful of the present, we have the opportunity to cut through this belief in the existence of a separate self. The existence of this separate self is actually a story we tell ourselves, a dream. It has no basis in actuality. But we need to have a direct experience of this. In fact, we need to experience it many, many times, (coughs) over and over. So stubborn is the delusion of separateness. One way to begin to see it in in our experience is in our relationship to pleasure and pain. This can reveal some interesting things about how we hold this view of a separate self. <coughs> there is a teacher, there was a teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who... Uh, lived in India and had many students visit and ask him questions, and they were all written down, his answers as well. And So one day a questioner said (coughs) to him, (coughs) Pain is not acceptable. We could all agree on that, right? He said, Why not? Did you ever try? Do try. And you will find in acceptance of pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. The personal self by its very nature is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. So these three characteristics of every moment of our experience can only be contacted in the present moment by bringing that careful noticing to just how it is that things are appearing in our experience. So this present moment, this is our training ground, where we see the truth of endless change, where we can see suffering and and the end of suffering. Where we can see the belief in me and mine being enacted as thoughts, as feelings, as judgments, as conclusions. The present moment is where we learn to value and have faith in this mindfulness of direct experience as a way to free ourselves. We discover this over and over again, where we get caught and how by applying direct awareness of our experience, we can free ourselves. One more thing I'd like to say about the value of the present moment. It's so obvious that we forget. This precious present moment is where the gift of life is being offered. As breathing, as hearing, as tasting, as seeing, as touching, it's given to us. We don't produce it. It's a gift. It happens spontaneously, moment to moment. So even as we are struggling in our lives with all kinds of pains or difficulties, this gift of life continues to be offered. The sun, the moon, and the stars continue to rise and set. It's autumn now, the leaves fall. The earth readies itself for winter. We breathe, we taste, we hear we feel, we think, this precious gift of life keeps unfolding. Sometimes we forget its preciousness. Sister Chan Kong, who is in a, a nun with um, Thich Nhat Hanh, writes very beautifully about an experience she had during the war in Vietnam, where she was working to help people in a village that was bombed four times. They would rebuild, it would be bombed. They would rebuild, it would be bombed. She said after the fourth time, she felt angry and frustrated. And she saw a number of young people carried away by their anger. But then she says, but this is half a bowl of rice. When you are... Angry, you get carried away by your anger. So I knew this, and I released the tension and tried only to dwell in the present moment. At that moment, I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of the bombing. There was a little flower still blooming in the midst of the ruin, and I was truly moved. I said, oh, this little flower has done her best, why not me? I looked around. I saw there were quite a few angels in that ruin, including that little flower, bodhisattvas trying to help. I had to do my best to go in that direction of beauty. I saw that life is not only cruelty and confusion and ignorance, but life also has many heartful people, wonderful people who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that so much beauty in life is waving to you and saying hello to you. You only need to see one little flower. So can we be there for it? Can we open to it, this life that is constantly unfolding, through us, in us, all around us? There's a little poem. We sit together, the mountain and I, till only the mountain remains. Could we say, we sit together? The breathing and I, till only the breathing remains. Or we sit together, the hearing and I, until only the hearing remains. Or the sensing. Or the feeling. Or we sit together, the sadness and I, until only the sadness remains. Then we are alive. Our life may continue to have difficulties, heartbreak and sorrow, but in this present moment we can experience living without the burden of me and mine, and in that find a life that is inexplicably rich and joyful. One more poem to end. It's a poem by W. S. Merwin called Thank You. Listen. With the night falling we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridge to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After, after funerals we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin, in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars, in elevators, Remembering wars, and the police at the back door, and the beating on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. So if we could sit together for a few minutes. talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 9, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.